I want something that's going to wake me up and fuck me up. Welcome to our second season of Spirited Discussions. I'm Lachlan Watt and I have over 10 years experience in both the spirits and bar industries while also having an insatiable thirst for understanding the booze that we drink. Through this series, we will dive deeper into the topics that we have grazed in season one and dive into some other historical tidbits that have guided our drinking habits. Join me through our second season and well, let's get started. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Spirited Discussions and today we are going to talk about vodka and the misconceptions around it because, well, in my experience, people don't really know much about it or, you know, kind of put it to the side. But we're going to break that down today and I'm joined by a friend of mine, Seb Rayburn. Hi, welcome. Hey, hello. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming all the way to to join me today. Um, Let's start off by getting a little bit of a history of your time in the industry. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I, in fact, there's probably some pieces that I probably you wouldn't even know about going mm. back a very long way. I sort <laughs> of, um, my whole career has been in the booze industry in yeah, one yeah. form or another. I actually started behind the bar in sort of regional Victorian nightclubs. So um, that was a very different space. But you learn to work fast, that's yeah, yeah. for sure. You Absolutely. Know? You would. Um, but uh, I then uh, went to London in the in the late nineties, mm-hmm. so going back a very long way, and I had the privilege and a lot of luck to work with some you know pretty incredible people there, uh, including you know Dick Bradsall and Wayne Collins, who were that's, really that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and they were they were so you know we we look back on it now, and they were the sort of the the architects, I guess, of the modern London sort of cocktail scene. But really, what I learned from them and what they taught everyone they worked with was a, yeah. was a love of drinks, a love of flavor and a love of the stories and, and the history. So, yeah. you know, they, they really taught me that and I sort of brought that back and moved to Melbourne and, you know, worked at Gin Palace and Melbourne yeah, Supper yeah. Club and Ginger with Sam Ross. I like yeah, to yeah. say I taught him everything he knows, <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, thoroughly sort of, um, you know, took that a million steps further over in New York, which is, you know, fantastic. But I then, and I sort of joke, I'm working my way up the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. So you start in the nightclub and then a cocktail bar and then working with brands. So I've been brand ambassador with, with 42 yeah. Below, with 666 Vodka, mm-hmm. um, you know, working in sales and then owning our own bar. We owned 1806 yeah. and opened that and, you know, which was a real sort of... Um, passion about classic cocktails and history yeah yeah and then you know from there into production so you know doing distilling and then owning antha which is um myself and dervla my partner our gin distillery and so it's yeah been that sort of slow process to start serving the drinks and then owning the bar and then working with brands and then creating brands and then you know working with distillers and then distilling so at some point in the future it all has to lead to farming i guess yeah <laughs> um, which is what you've been working on recently hasn't it i've um, learned a lot about soil up in uh, up in queensland yeah, yeah absolutely with with agave so so yeah working with farmers so i haven't <laughs> and well from what i know about you um, you've helped build 
you said your your gin distillery, but you've helped build not just gin brand, but a gin brand, a vodka brand, a whiskey brand, and now an agave brand. So you've you know yeah. covered quite a large part of the industry. It's um and and I worked for yeah quite a few years as a consultant. So I worked with Marinette on their mm-hmm. first liqueur recipes. Um, I had the you know the privilege. I mean, I, I probably learned a lot more from her than she did from me working with. Um, uh, Brogan Car mm-hmm. when they were setting up their distillery, um, worked with Hamish and Rachel up in Bright. So I've, you know, I think our industry, that's the Australian spirit industry and the Australian cocktail and bar industry, is it's been such an incredible sort of 25-year, 30-year sort of amazing growth. And, yeah, I've, I've had the privilege of being there for a lot of it, and I mean, especially the spirit industry right now, mm. how, how much it's grown and how much passion there is for it, and how much we're discovering and how much we're doing. So, so yeah, I've I've built I think six distilleries now. Wow! That I've sort of been part of designing and building. Um, you know, one of our own, and then <laughs> a bunch of others, some from the ground up, and some sort of just putting input on things that were, were already in place. But it's yeah, it's fascinating. It is a really exciting, as you mentioned, it's uh, the Australian spirits industry is quite young. I mean, I'm going to gloss over this because let's talk about vodka. But (laughs) the Australian spirits industry is very young. And even in my, what, it's now 10 years that I've been in the industry, I've seen it go from even 10 years ago, it was negligible compared to where it is now. I remember, you know, being the the first distillery I ever visited was was Beef Feeder in London. And, you know, this is a, a bartender working in a great cocktail bars in London and, and meeting, you know, that whole thing. And in the back of my mind was this sort of very tiny glimmer that maybe one day that maybe I could own my own bar, yeah. you know, and that would be, you know, something, you know, incredible. But the to, to extend that line further to this idea that I could own my own distillery, I mean, with, with my partner Derv, who's been a partner in everything I do for, you know, my whole career and, and most of my life, um, it was inconceivable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just impossible to imagine, you know, visiting Beefy Distillery and seeing the scale of something that's sort of been doing it for nearly 200 years, you sort of go, okay, well, you know, this this is unreachable. Yeah. And then, you know, 24 years later, yeah. you know, got a distillery, built distilleries. It, it, you own a distillery yeah. and built five others. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's... Um, well, I guess we might as well start with, as we do with every episode, our 60 second history. And I'm oh. going to get you to time. You want me to, okay, I'm going to time, I'm ready. Hassle me okay. if I uh, am not doing it fast enough. Okay. And also, well, I'm excited to hear what you've got <laughs> to say about it because I put a lot of research into this and, you know, there's not a lot of information around the history because it's a lot hidden, but we'll see what I can achieve. All right. Let's go. All right. You ready? Three, two, one, go. The origins of vodka for such a clear spirit are kind of murky. I love that line. It is unclear whether it originated in Poland or Russia with some of the earliest evidence coming from the 8th or 9th century with a lot of written evidence coming around the 14th century, but it was absolutely a crane spirit made from either barley, wheat or rye due to their availability and affordability. Up until the 1500s, vodka was mostly used as a medicine, In the 1600s, it became popularized as a drink to warm people in the harsh European winters, mostly around Poland. But the potato wasn't introduced to Europe until the latter half of the 16th century, not really introduced to Russia until the latter part of the 17th century. Russian vodka production was mostly illicit until 
uh, the 1800s and then became legal and widely produced for the population. 15 It seconds. was during World War II that the American soldiers were introduced to vodka and brought it back to the US. Consumption of vodka exploded in the US, which led to our modern understanding of vodka, with a whole array of vodkas being produced around the world from different sources. I 59 seconds. Yeah. That was fantastic. Oh, wow. 59 <laughs> seconds. That was, that was excellent. I'm so. really, really proud of that one. That was good. Yeah. That's probably That's the best one I've done yet. Um, oh, i got to pick up on a few things. Please, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts? Vodka production, when you say it was illicit in Germany, it was not in illicit. Russia. Uh, sorry, in Russia. My apologies. Not illicit. It was just owned only um, by the nobility. Yeah, right. So if you were not part of the Tsar's sort of group, you couldn't have a distillery. And it was um, changes that sort of you know, really took Russia in a totally different direction in the late 1800s that allowed people who were not nobles to own businesses, mm-hmm. to to start distilleries that, that actually had a huge change in the sort of social makeup of Russia at that time. And that's where brands like Smirnoff came from. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the first distillering brands, but also first vodka brands that was allowed to be owned by someone who was not noble. Right. And that was the sort of thing. So, so it wasn't illicit, it just you had to be nobility to have a license. So it was just deeply controlled. But then obviously the other thing about vodka coming to America in World War II, um, it was already there and already popular. It got to America in the 30s with uh, an American entrepreneur who started Smirnoff America. So (laughs) the Smirnoff family had fled Russia in 1919 in the revolution and actually sold their recipe and their brand uh, to an American in Paris in the 1920s and he'd taken it back to America and started Smirnoff Vodka in America in the late 20s. It didn't go well initially. Mm-hmm. And then he partnered in um, California with a, a ginger beer company. Right. And the two, who, the, which also wasn't doing very well. <laughs> but the two together made the Moscow Mule. Yeah, yeah. And they really popularised it. And it, you got to remember, this is, this is the 1930s. So we quite liked russia at this point you know we didn't have that sort of anti-communism reds under the bed thing that was much later yeah yeah. that came around post-world war ii that's right so um definitely the moscow mule was a huge hit they used to they went up and down the west coast of america with polaroid cameras taking photos of bartenders making a moscow mule and they could put the photo behind the bar and bartenders love to be photographed yeah yeah you know we love it so (laughs) i think we're, we're yeah, egomaniacal yeah. with a slight uh, self-worth uh, <laughs> issue. <laughs> no comment. But, um, <laughs> so by the time, you know, World War II came around, Rush, you know, vodka as a sense of being a Russian product was already popular in the United States. But what I think drove it steps further yeah, yeah. was probably immigration out of Eastern Europe mm-hmm. post-war, you know, yeah. post-war and then the real sort of, you know, Stalin era yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of Eastern Europe where you had even more people sort of fleeing, you know, the, all of those sort of states. So I think not so much it was sort of American service people but definitely that immigration and entrepreneurs making good booze. Well, two things. First of all, I always love seeing you because I always <laughs> learn something. Um, and that also leads into that misconception that, you know, I did a huge amount of research trying to find this history on vodka and this this was the thing that I found most legitimate because everything else was completely wrong, saying it was originally a vo- uh, potato spirit made in the 1300s. 
which no potatoes. The no potato potatoes. didn't come to no, to no. Europe until much much later. Yeah. So how could it have been that? And so it's just there is so much misconception around vodka, and it's mostly led by marketing by brands, and that that leads yes. the charge of that. Yes, you know? indeed. And we see that in a lot of booze industries. The the marketing by, well, yeah, by the brands only... is created by people who don't understand the product they're marketing. And the stories are told by someone who's either had a lot of that product to drink, yeah, or has a lot of it to sell. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the two people telling the story yeah. and neither are reliable. Exactly. So, yeah, then that's the misconception we're trying to break down today, right? I think one of the important things about vodka and one of the things I love about it, and we'll, we'll get into this even further later, I'm sure, but it tracks technology. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, vodka in its purest sort of simplest form is just a still beer. Yeah. You know? So it's just, it's just a still beer. So you've got the whole sort of alchemical tradition getting into Europe in the sort of 700s, coming out of um, the sort of Persian Empire. That, mm-hmm. You know, you've got to remember that that Persian Empire ruled, you know, most of Andalusia and Spain right up into France and they brought distillation technology everywhere. And so... And it, we, we did yeah. an episode on um, the kind of the rustic spirits from around the world. Yeah. Um, and we didn't really touch on vodka too much because, I mean, vodka is a mod, more modern term well, for something that was produced everywhere already. Moment, like it's the same um, phenomena that's happening. It, it, as you get into, you know, Spain, Portugal, France, Greece, you're distilling wine because that's what you had. Mm-hmm. They, they grew wine. As you sort of then move into Germany and Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, that's all beer. Yeah, and same, same with Ireland and Scotland yeah, and, that's you know. And then... The big jump comes, you know, and you, you sort of pulled it up. It's that 16th and 17th century. This is where there's a real divergence. Mm-hmm. And in Scotland and Ireland, this is when we start, you know, the, the, all of that, doc, you know, the documents, scant written history sort of mm-hmm. says this is when, you know, the, the Ode V, the water life, Usaspetha, sort of gets its way into barrels mm-hmm. and stops being shit, <laughs> right? You know, this is the thing. You've got this sort of probably twice distilled new make. It's not very nice to drink. It's also around the same time where the French start to put their eau de vie into to That's barrels and, and make, make cognac and armagnac. And, and what happens in Poland, Russia, uh, you know, Ukraine, Estonia, all of that part of the world, they aren't ageing their spirit. They're either flavouring it or they're distilling again and distilling again. And it actually becomes a sort of... an expression of and a journey of technology mm-hmm. of multiple distillation and the first triple distilled vodka that's documented was presented at the court of Charlemagne in France in the 1700s from Poland yeah, and it right. was momentous because it was pure enough to drink yeah, you yeah. know straight away you know this incredibly it did, clean it didn't need to be you know negative 20 degrees celsius for you to be able to stomach yeah, it yeah, you know? that's right it was it suddenly wasn't a challenge shot yeah, yeah you know for for young folk it was something that was you know exceptional to to drink and to sip yeah yeah but i mean it was also at that point in time a lot of alcohols were treated as medicines you know yeah. and that's why they were also flavored with different botanicals that had curative properties clove was really clove, popular yeah uh clove wormwood etc would yeah. flavor these things to to as curatives um, but before we dive further into how this stuff is made, what was your first experience with vodka? Do you, you know, remember it or <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what was it that really kind of excited you about it? I think, um, <laughs> so my parents 
didn't drink. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, I mean, they might have a glass of wine, a glass of champagne sometimes. Strangely, my mum would have a glass of Benedictine at Christmas. But that was sort of it. And so (laughs) I guess to put this in a little bit of a perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. the first cocktail I ever tried with, with some school friends and, you know, we, we really enjoyed, you know, the sort of the, the, the films of the 60s and we were like, right, we need to make some martinis, you know. And we, we'd, I'd taken a recipe from a, a Wizard of Ed comic book, you know, three parts, uh, five parts gin to, to two parts vermouth and olive, you know. And so we made martinis, you know, we bought martini glasses, we bought a jug to stir it and all of this sort of stuff. But, <laughs> but what we had neglected because we were profoundly ignorant, <laughs> this is, you know, um, <laughs> we didn't realise it was supposed to be cold, mm-hmm. you know, so we weren't stirring it with ice, you know. So this Just was warm gin, warm, warm vermouth, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was terrible. So some of my first and, experiences yeah, diluted. <laughs> with vodka were, well, you know, this this is it's to do a job, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, so you get together as a, you know, I guess a uh, misbehaving teenager, and you split a bottle with a friend, and so you just pour it out into two glasses yeah. and just proceed to drink it. Isn't that what it's for? No, no, it's not. Don't do that. <laughs> Absolute my, well, waste. And that's actually very similar yeah. to my very first ex- <laughs> uh, experience with with vodka. It would have been definitely a. <clears throat> high school um, party. <laughs> um, yeah. And a friend of mine would have had a bottle of vodka and just... Just drink it neat, warm yeah. from yeah. a glass. Yeah, From I a mean, plastic cup. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, uh, I, I, older brothers, and I do remember my, my, my oldest brother coming back. Um, he'd been in England and he'd come back to Australia and I, I still would have been, you know, maybe 17, something like that. And I remember him you know, buying at duty free, yeah. you know, which at that point was a, a, a vodka called Danska that came in a, in an aluminium bottle. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, having I that in the that freezer, one. you know, and having a sip of that, you know, frozen and just being like, oh, wow, like this is really special. And this sense of this special spirit you couldn't buy. Mm-hmm. You had to, oh, right, it's because you were traveling overseas and you could get it duty free. Like otherwise you could never afford it. You know, like there was this sort of um, aura around what at that stage is sort of premium vodka, you know. And yeah. so so that was sort of tickling along in the background. But I guess, you know, then the next big milestone for me was working with 42 Below. Yeah, right. And so... Um, then 42 yeah. Below is the, the vodka brand from New Zealand, right? That's right. Yeah. It started in sort of 1999, 1998, depending on whose history you ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I started working with them in about 2004 and then was full-time with them in 2005, 2006 and, and working with Jacob Bryars doing the vodka universities, which was just groundbreaking at the time. So we'd line up like 10 vodkas, you know, your Smirnoff Red and your Absolute and, you know, Belvedere, Grey Goose, like all of the, you know, pretty much anything we could get our all hands on. All the recognisable right? brands. And, and and 42 Below. And all we would do is taste them with bartenders to say, what do you taste and what is it made from? Right, this one's from wheat. This one's from rye. This one uses this type of distillation. This one uses this type of water. Can you taste a difference? Like a really simple question. And you can. Yeah, absolutely you can. And that's what I guess that's leading in, us into the main body of this episode, which is the stigmatization 
misconception of what vodka is and that it's a flavorless, odorless spirit. That's not always been the truth, as we've already mentioned, you know. It's, well, it's um, never been the truth. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, it was more so the truth for a while, but nowadays we're also starting to break out I think out it of was that. a myth. Yeah, I think yeah. it was the myth for a while, but I don't think there was truth to it. I think it was only perceived as flavorless when compared to, you know, whiskies, which are certainly flavorful. And, and rum and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know? like these are spirits that are much more nuanced and subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're definitely not in any way flavors. I mean, look, I, I should probably declare a bias. Mm-hmm. I love vodka. I really enjoy I, vodka. I love it. And as I'm, I remember, you know, when we owned 1806, really being, you know, one of the only cocktail bartenders who genuinely loved vodka, you know, with a passion and, and sought out interesting vodkas. Mm-hmm you know, that you could enjoy and single estate stuff, you know, out of Russia and out of Poland and, and you know, and the reason I love it, and I tell this to bartenders everywhere, right, if you're in a cocktail bar, the technology that sits behind everything we do, every single product on the back bar mm-hmm. is distillation. Yeah. Right? It's not fermentation, that's wine, that's beer, all of that sort of stuff. It's distillation. That is the technology to which our whole sort of piece of the industry is dedicated. And that's, and where, that's where this whole, because uh, people always talk about tewa, right? Tewa in alcohol. Now, tewa means from the earth. Yep. But when it comes to spirits, tewa is the, the you get a sense of tewa from how it's made and who makes it, right? But also, which is even the take distillation. It, that further piece, right? If you're a winemaker, it's very hard to get the tewa out of the bottle. Yeah. If you're a distiller... The goal is to keep the terroir in the bottle. And, and this, this is it for me, you know, because there is no more pure expression of distillation than vodka. Yeah, yeah. There's no oak. There's no botanicals. Like there's, there's yeah. nothing except the There's still, nothing to hide behind. Nowhere to hide. Yeah. And so a truly great vodka that is pure enough to be fresh and bright and clean but with enough flavour to have character and to have a texture texture, and that little silkiness in, in, with the mouthfeel and have that burn not be harsh but be mm. like soft but also warming. You know, there's a, there's a real art to that. And actually that's a great, great point that you made. That's the so texture. That, that is a huge part of distillation, right? It's not meant to just be this rough, harsh spirit. You want something that's creamy. You want something oily. You want something viscous that coats the palate. Um, and that comes down to can be what it's made from and how it's distilled. And they're the two th- main core parts of what vodka is. And it also, uh, yeah, totally. And there's, you know, there's, there's so much to that. And it's how you make the cuts, you know, because yeah. obviously you get your sort of brighter, sharper stuff in the head cut. And so it's like, well, how much of that do I want in to make it bright and light? And then as you move through the heart and you're heading towards the end of the run, you're getting... You know, that's when you're getting the oils, you're getting those soft, creamy mouthfeel, you're getting length and you're getting, you know, that's where the, that sharp burn becomes a soft burn. But also you're getting bitter notes and you, mm. you're getting, you know, hints of coffee or mocha that you might not want and that might fight a little bit. Like so... Because um, in the early part, as far as flavour goes, in the early part you're also getting those like light, brighter esters, which are the fruity components, you know, you know... Orchard fruits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And if you're, you know, if you're distilling from wheat, that's when you're getting 
you know, citrus and little hints of even aniseed. Mm. And clove, out. yeah. I've always found clove on wheat, wheat yeah. vodka, um, which I actually quite enjoy. So <laughs> I guess um, <laughs> we should maybe put a little more context around this. I've had the, I guess, the privilege of working with um, a, a company called TSI and we embarked in sort of 2019. We started the work to create, you know, a distinct Australian vodka brand. Yeah, yeah. And we wanted it to sort of be approachable but also premium and, and stuff like that. And so there's a few things that came out of that. The first part for me was designing the distillery. So and a lot for me is that the technology and the stills you choose define the options you have as a distiller. Yeah, yeah. So it's like if you have X type of still, you're going to make X type of vodka, mm-hmm. you know. So choosing the still and, and going with a, you know, so we use a three and a half thousand litre copper pot with 12 rectification plates on a side column. So it's mm-hmm. done as a pot distillation. It's batch distilled, but it has this rectification piece. Yeah, yeah. Gives you a lot of flexibility, but a lot of ability to make very, very pure spirit. Also, yeah, it, it gives you the ability to dial things in yeah. in a certain way. And um, find the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that we did, you know, I sort of said, you know, look at look at what's happening with the vodka world. You know, this is 2018, 2019. Um, Tito's in the US had really driven, you know, new engagement with vodka and it was all about, right, this is corn-based and corn makes it softer, sm- smoother, and that's the difference. And I sort of said, well, they've never proved it. They, they've made this assertion to say our product is smoother because it's corn. Mm-hmm. But there's no there's no evidence for that. So if we launch two products, maybe a corn and a wheat, or we're demonstrating the truth that different grain tastes different. You yeah. know, they've made that claim, but they've never demonstrated that claim. So we've got an opportunity here to piggyback on their claim. Their work. But take then... it a step further and mm. actually say taste the difference. And then I was I was then challenged back to say, if we're gonna do two, we have to do three. Okay. And so it was, you know, wheat, corn and rye were the sort of the you know, the logical steps. So I increased my workload <laughs> to create... Tripled it, in fact. <laughs> more, ...more recipes. But, um, you know, when we launched uh, in, in 2020, it's a challenging year for a lot of reasons, but when we launched and, you know, people got it and, you know, from a brand and a sales point of view, it also changes the whole question. It's not, are you going to buy a bottle of my vodka? It's which one of my vodkas are you going to buy? So you can sort of have a different conversation. You can, yeah. <laughs> just change ways. the question, yeah. really. That's um, right. And, I mean, that's that's what Vodka Star Dad has, is a grain spirit. And like, like I mentioned before, it was wheat, rye and barley was, your, I guess, your original one, but that kind of developed. So um, I guess let's break down some of these sources. Actually, we should also mention what we're drinking because we are tasting something really cool, which is... Got a very proud statement on the top of the the bottle here, which is world's best vodka in 2018, um, and it's a local one. Yeah, yeah, Dan Tassie. Yeah, yeah, Tasmanian Sheep Way vodka, and they they sort of paved the way. Yeah, in a lot of ways in Australian vodka, which is really exciting. So we um, Grain Shaker was world's best vodka 2023. So we you know we like to think that we're following a proud heritage of nearly six years old now. Of yeah. <laughs> Making exceptional Australian vodka, but yeah, this is this is lovely. I've been a, a huge fan of this for many years because it is quite different. It's very like it's it's much more it's much bolder, much more flavoursome. But where it sort of I guess sings is just that texture. 
Yeah, and that's something that I've seen it actually evolve into as well. I remember tasting this for the first time, I want to say in 2016. Maybe it was 2017. But I remember tasting it then and it was a little bit harsher than it is now. It was a bit new makey. A bit new makey. Yeah. But then it's become that silky, creamy texture that you were talking about before and that can be led into distillation and then also being made from whey. Yeah, yeah, being yeah. Made from this protein-heavy milk I, substance. Yeah, whey's you know. got, a, whey's got a, a long history of um, sneaking its way into vodka. Mm. If you jump back 15 years and buy a bottle of Smirnoff Red from a supermarket in Australia, it would have been made in New Zealand from whey. Yeah. And that only shifted, yeah, about 15 years ago when actually the EU um, brought in new regulations. So the EU regulation states that to be considered vodka in the EU, it must be from a cereal grain. So sadly... Which, that means potato vodka's out. Potato vodka's... Oh, potato vodka has a dispensation. It has its own sort of side tradition. You know, but then so, also Ciroc yeah. is a grape vodka. Ciroc's out. It's made of grapes. It's not vodka. It's an eau de vie then. Uh, well, yeah. It's a brandy. Yeah. You know, it falls under the brandy umbrella. Schnapps. I yeah. mean, you know, it, it sort of doesn't fall into that sort of category, which I think is really interesting, but it meant that, you know, big, big companies like uh, Diageo, world's largest spirit company who owns Smirnoff, you know, they said, okay, well, we can't keep making it out of way in New Zealand. So it's now Smirnoff in Australia is made out of wheat in Australia, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know if we can call them an Australian craft spirit, but <laughs> it's certainly made in Australia. Because Smirnoff is made, because uh, for the for the UK it's made in at Camera Bridge Distillery in Edinburgh. Yeah. And which is this huge black side of a distillery, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's. They measure things in, yeah, double B doubles, not in. Leaders. Yeah. <laughs> How many B doubles a day is that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what? It's a 700 million liter distillery. And I think this is a really important thing about vodka. With whiskey, you know, the, the sort of the artisan or to passion project in their shed, you know, slaving over a small still to make this oily, rich spirit and then leaving barrels for years till it's perfect. Like, there is an environment where that individual makes a product better than the big companies. There's also a romance around it, right? It's not the same for vodka. Can't make good vodka with shit equipment. No, it's got to right? be good equipment. It's, it's, this is why at the very start I sort of said that great vodka tracks technology, mm-hmm. you know. Arguably when you get too big you sort of lose the sort of the 1%. You know, that you don't have passionate distillers who are watching the still and, and tracking those movements um, because it can't be automated, right? Because yeah. you start with a raw material that's from the ground, that's terroir of the plant. And so every year it changes, every week it changes, right? So how your ferment and all of that changes. So there is for me a sweet spot in production where you're big enough to be able to afford good equipment. Yeah, yeah. And you're small enough that your staff and your team are deeply passionate enough to know. So when it's a middle ground, right? With, with Grain Shaker, when we do our wheat, um, we we run the still um, a bit softer at the start. We let through lots of that beautiful citrus flavour, um, but it is really sort of quite. It's much more about what happens sort of down the track, mm-hmm. right? So we've got to push back all of those bitter flavours, keep it bright and light. 
when we run corn, it's actually really linear. It's like we, we have the settings the same almost start to finish, but making your head cut in the right spot, so important. But then when we run rye, it's like, no, let more through at the start because that's mm. actually this beautiful, clean, sweet flavor. But then, you know, ramp up the way the stool runs so you get greater purity. So we change the, you know, the ABV that we're distilling at during the run to match the flavor profile of the grain. Yeah, yeah. But it's a big enough still, it's a three and a half thousand litre pot, that your batch size is big enough to pay for that level of expertise. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got to pay someone well to have that knowledge, understanding, passion, attention to detail. It's like you're doing this every week. You yeah. can't relax. You still have to be on it tasting. You have to be smelling that distillate during the run and making slight changes to the still setting. So in a lot of ways for me, there is a sweet so It's probably a bit bigger than Grain Shaker, I'll be, I'll be honest. I mean, mm. Grain Shaker, you know, in Australian context is quite big. In a, in you know, a European global, or yeah. US concept, you know, it's like some, it's still a garage hobby style I mean, size, you, you know. You, you mentioned Tito's before. Tito's oh is an God. enormous brand. Huge. And that's still considered a craft brand. <laughs> well, well, they well, have successfully <laughs> they have successfully defended numerous uh, court battles over them being handmade, yeah, even yeah. though anyone in the industry knows that if you're working with five different contract distilleries, you're probably not a handmade. Yeah, like, you're you know, not considered that. Yeah, we'll get sued if we talk too much. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, there is, there is a sweet spot. But you do have to, uh, you know, for me, I do think you do have to be big enough to have the right level of technology. Yeah. And there's lots of different technologies. And copper, like it's so, so fascinating, right? Yeah. Spirit is so fascinating. If you don't treat your copper right, you don't get the flavor profile you want. Like so when when you do a citric clean of your of your still, which refreshes the copper, pulls on these sulfides out, you actually get better texture. Mm-hmm. You get these changes, you get that sweet note in the flavor profile. So it's not just about having the right still. It's how you treat the still. Are you cleaning it right? Is there a good schedule? Am I tasting that moment to say, you know what? Before I do my next run, I need to do a citric because this is coming out a little bit dry. And and this, I mean, it's, this it's, leads into so many quirky things. I don't know if is. you've looked at silver filtration of vodka. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of stuff which is all happening at a sort of ionic level. It's not physical filtration. This isn't like what size the particles are. This is like how do I manipulate these particles to actually change? I, I find it no, fascinating. I love it. So I love that you mentioned the word alchemical before because <laughs> alchemical, the, the history of that word is alchemy, which was indistinguishable from magic. Absolutely. But we've understood the chemistry now, but it's still so magical to see it all actually put in place to, to be able to, you know, pick up a bottle in a, a bottle shop, be able to of a spirit that has had no... Do you know, I found, uh, um, I discovered a secret to the wonderful world of science. Mm. I was in Scotland at the Scotch Whiskey Institute. where That, they that exa- place I really want to go fasc- to. It's so fascinating. This is one of the places where you can take a bottle and they can test, you know, two milliliters of it to see if it's a counterfeit, right? Yeah. They can do all of that sort of and stuff. And they, they know exactly what's happened to it from every step of the way, just from that two milliliters. And they... A lot of that, they use gas spectrography, which I always pronounce badly, and they use all of that sort of stuff. And then I discovered, because they have one of these machines there, at the highest level of spectroscopy, which will pull apart every flavor component in a sample, right? Mm-hmm. It'll separate every single one every and tell you the concentration, the, every, yeah. everything. 
there's actually a human element. Mm-hmm. And the really top level of those machines require a constant human with their nose in a receptacle indicating when the ester changes. And it's a human, trained human, smelling mm. what's coming out of the machine is more accurate. And, and this sort of brings it, for me, full circle. Like you talk about art versus science. It's like, okay, so the greatest scientific tool we have for analyzing spirits is still a human nose. Well, the olfactor. So yeah, I, like, I, I've been know. doing a lot of research recently in my, in my downtime, which I've got very little of. In the olfactory sense, because it is, it's something that I, I mention um, in my whiskey tastings that I do for people. The olfactory sense is an incredible piece of equipment. Um, can pick up millions and millions of compounds. In comparison, our brain is very slow. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> but, yeah. 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 And we, we talk about that when we're talking uh, about training. How do you train a distiller? It's like, well, the first thing is you don't taste with your mouth, you don't taste with your nose, you taste with your brain. Start training your brain to pick this stuff up. Yeah, yeah. Your nose is picking up way more than your you nose are. is already doing the work it's yeah. meant to do. You have to just dial it in. You have to you have to learn to listen to your nose, you know, deeply. And this is where the subtleties in vodka come around, where we can pick these things up. Our palate and our senses can. Our brain sometimes can't. Can I also throw and and I probably shouldn't say this when you're distilling, you don't. Like, honestly, if you've got a reasonable palate and you've done some spirit tasting, you know, give me three, four days and I can teach you to taste the sweet spot during the distillation mm. every time. It's it's so clear. When it's coming off the still at 94, 95% alcohol, it's so clear when it's like, that's bang on and nope, that's not it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just, I mean, we, we have flavor notes, you know, we have like a... a you know, a language map that says these are the flavor indicators you're looking for with this product and if you smell this, change this setting. And, and all of that, building those tools takes time. But the fundamental is that anyone who's got half a palate, you teach them what to look for, they can pick it up. Yeah. And really it, it does. Uh, I've, I've been there when um, not at your distillery but at a distillery when yeah. it's just ticked over. You just go, that's it. That's, yeah. that's what you want. That's it. Yeah. And it, it, it is something that's really interesting. For those who need a, you know, spirit consultant to make them a spectacular recipe to win, <laughs> uh, you know, world's best vodka, which we did last year, um, finding the sweet spot the first time, I'm going to say that's really valuable. Yeah, mm-hmm. hugely valuable. You should immediately employ someone like me to <laughs> do that work. But then finding it again and again and again actually becomes very easy. Yeah. yeah. Once you do it the first time, it's pretty, pretty, yeah. pretty fine. With um, good equipment. Yeah, with good equipment. That's that's <laughs> obviously the reason, you know, the reason that all of these things win. Um, yeah, good equipment with good operators. Yep. Um, and this stuff is fantastic. Oh, it's, so good. it's such a sweet, sweet texture. I should point out that these guys um, absolutely trounced us in the Australian Distilled Spirit Awards 2023. So, mm. um, yeah, Hartshorn was the Australian champion in the trophy. And then, um, yeah, Grain Shaker got the got the nod for the world's best but we couldn't win australia's best so uh, <laughs> cheers to ryan on that one um and pe- you know people can make flavored vodkas as well you know so and long tradition are, of that I long mean, tradition yeah these guys make a flavored vodka they make a peat smoked sheep's way <laughs> vodka a salt bush vodka phenomenal stuff but yeah like you said there's a long history of it yeah i mean because when you go back to when vodka was really only twice distilled 
it wasn't great to drink neat. So it, it, you put cherries in it, you put walnuts in it, lots of honey, clove, um, yeah. uh, on- onions. Yeah. Onions, of course. What? On- anyway, but yeah, onions, um, chili, when that sort of started to enter um, uh, into Europe, but also pepper, black peppercorn was yeah. a really traditional sort of way of flavoring it. So yeah, flavored vodka is even more traditional in a lot of ways. I guess the most common one you see is lemon zest, right? Yeah. Uh, would be, well, in the modern sense. And the thanks to the Cosmopolitan yeah, for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, in a lot of vodkas, a lot of people wouldn't realize because they wouldn't say it on the on the list of ingredients, but it would have lemon zest in the distillation process still to this day. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I've found quite a few that still, still flavor their vodkas with lemon zest. There's a little... Um you know, we talk about if anyone wants to have some fun doing vodka analysis. I mean, look, I when I worked with Triple Six, we used to do it. We used to do a training session called "The Secret History of Vodka," and we'd talk about the things that the marketing companies didn't particularly advertise. And um, uh, one of the things taught to me by Greg Sanderson is: you go get an oil burner. You know, there's like you put a candle underneath, and it has mm-hmm. a little holder for the oil, and put some vodka in it. Just run it dry, and if there's a sticky residue, they've got you know, they've, they've, they've filled it with uh, glucose, which is legal mm-hmm. and uh, it makes it softer, sweeter, smoother, but they're just putting in, you know, one and a half percent sugar to trick your palate. So, so yeah, and the, the bottom end of the market does whatever the hell it wants to try to make yeah, they'll it just quicker, get, easier. They'll get neutral grain yeah. spirit and flavor it slightly with different compounds. And, and that's a really important thing. If neutral grain spirit is such high purity... Why isn't it better vodka? Mm. So most of our gin distilleries get their neutral from Manildra in New South Wales, an exceptional producer. Mm-hmm. They produce all of the neutral spirit for the Australian pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. for the Australian petrochemical industry, right? So these, this company produces very, very precise, very pure spirit. And it doesn't taste as good yeah. because if you go too pure... You, impurity is also oh, flavor. flavor. It's texture. Oh, it's all of those things. So, so. yeah, and that yeah. and that's right. So if you're getting super super pure spirit out of you know out of industry, you got to add something to soften it. Let's dive into how to drink vodka, because you know there's yeah. uh, there's a misconception. It's just you throw it into something that you don't want to taste, right? You don't yep. want to taste the booze, and you just flavor it with a lot of other things. Yep. But there are great ways to drink vodka. And, you know, I mean, let's not beat around the bush. If you want the least flavorsome spirit, it's probably vodka. Like it yeah. is very, very light in flavor. But I mean, my favorite way to drink vodka to actually um, pull out the flavors of that spirit. I love drinking vodka and ice. Vodka and ice. Also vodka out of yep. the freezer because yep. once it's in the freezer and it's ice cold, you get all of that texture come forward. And you can let it warm up in the glass or in the case of an ice, you can let it dilute in the glass and that's when you, you know, you can pick up faults or mm-hmm. you can pick up other nuances that the dilution sort of releases. Um, so that's a really great way to explore it. But don't, you know, if you're having vodka and ice for fresh lime, that's fresh lime because mm-hmm. that's going it's, to, it's such a dominant, powerful flavour, that's going to obscure the, the subtlety of the vodka. If yeah. you have a good vodka, you can drink it neat, you can drink it oh, on yeah, ice absolutely. and you shouldn't need to add anything to I, it. You can if you want. I challenge anyone who loves a vodka lime and soda, like go and buy a really cheap vodka, go buy a really good vodka, make yourself a vodka lime and soda. The good vodka tastes better. Like yeah. unequivocally, you put them next to each other, it tastes better. Okay, it may not taste, 
you know, exponentially better. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> like the forty dollars the bottle yeah. to better. Well, but, I think you know. the forty dollars, but but definitely you can pick it up and you can taste it. But you know, I think I think all of us would agree that um, a well-made vodka martini with a great vodka is a thing of beauty. And I don't in any way take away from gin martinis. Obviously, having Antha Gin and a gin distillery, we love gin martinis. We just love martinis. Well, that's <laughs> correct, you know. Um, but, you know, I yeah, a big, big fan. It, it, it allows you to get all of those nuances, all of those sort of flavours. And I think that a vodka martini with an olive, the savouriness of the olive seems to bring out the flavour and complexity in the spirit rather than obscure it. Yeah, yeah. So I actually find that a really enjoyable way to explore a vodka. So one thing I mentioned, Hartshorn's petered, see that'd be vodka amazing, and the saltbush vodka. Yeah, so like, those two yeah. brought together with the the olive martini with the olive would so be good. phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I guess this leads us into what cocktails we should be looking for for vodka. We've already talked about the vodka martini, but I guess the one of the most famous ones, especially because of you mentioned movies in the sixties, would be the Vespa martini. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I'm not a fan. No, oh, it's just like the worst. Like it. Oh, you know, the vodka dilutes the gin, so you don't get as much of that. And the gin sort of obscures the vodka. I love that it popularized vodka in a, mm. in a, you know, in a really different way. Um, it's the phrase from which we get, you know, shaken, not stirred, mm-hmm. you know, which has become an iconic sort of moment and, um, and probably led to decades of terrible martinis <laughs> in so many <laughs> ways. Um, um it was actually, it was in 1806 um, where one of the team convinced Robert De Niro to stop having uh, his martini shaken. Mm. So so the, the world can thank 1806 for the fact that he now drinks stirred martinis because they're better. Um, but it took a few nights. He, he came in sort of multiple nights in a row when they were filming and he was like, no, no, shaken, shaken, shaken. Nope, not interested, having it shaken. And then he was like, oh, all right, you keep asking me about it. And he's like... Oh yeah, that's better. <laughs> I'll have them stirred now, and that was, you know, that was it. So, um, but yeah, Vesp, yeah, the Vespa Martini. So for those that don't know, you know, it's what three three parts gin, two parts vodka, Kina Lille, yeah, yeah, you know, which is a semi sweet sort Aperitif, of move, yeah, yeah. but uh, has a little bit of um, quinine in it. Um, but yeah, if you you know the the crew at um, and I do love Lille, but yeah, a good savory driver move. In the oh. martini is second to none. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess your most common one would be something like Noily. Yep. Um, yeah, that oxidative handling during yeah. production gives it this beautiful dryness. Yeah. And for me, probably the drier vermouth, I probably like even more with vodka. Whereas with gin, I, I like a combination of a dry vermouth and something that's got a little bit of body yeah. with it. You know, with it like a Mancino Ambrato or something like that that's got a little bit of... See, one of, my fa- sweetness. one of my favorite things for a martini is splitting vermouth and like a dry sherry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So Which probably hearts. leads us yeah. into the flame of love. So this is a drink that I think I love for the theater of it. I love for the story of it. So it's, a, it's basically a vodka martini with dry sherry instead of vermouth, right? Yeah, yeah. Really simple, but then with an orange twist. But the orange twist is stirred in, mm-hmm. but you flame it first. So you actually have your... You have express your, the oils over a flame and... And then drop the oil in and stir it through, yeah. you know. And it was popularised by um, by Dean Martin. Right. You know, which in 2024 immediately sort of then 
I don't know, then brings for me a whole other set of questions around Sport the Flame of Love, Dean Martin, Rat Pack. There's probably part of this history we don't want to examine too closely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But from a flavour point of view, dry sherry, orange peel and vodka, awesome match. Fantastic. Uh, It's a fantastic drink. It really is. But I guess there's also um, outside of the martini kind of spectrum, you've got all these other drinks. We mentioned the Moscow Mule before. Yeah. You know, vodka, ginger beer and lime, phenomenal drink. It's a great drink. Yeah. Yeah. then you've also got things like, oh, I guess, a modern classic being the espresso martini, going back towards that martini spec. I had the pleasure of being taught how to make an espresso martini by Dean Bradsall, yeah. uh, Dick Bradsall. And one of the things that we forget <laughs> as Australians, especially living in Melbourne, in the 90s, the espresso martini's job was to take good vodka and make shit London coffee tastes better mm-hmm. <laughs> right so the That's espresso was, martini yeah. tasted better than the coffee and in a weird sort of way it's when the espresso martini gets to australia and we put awesome coffee with it that it really becomes a really brilliant drink whereas before that it was sort of a bit like well the coffee is now drinkable mm-hmm. and it's you know waking me up and what was know, it? All of those things. There was, there was the original name for the espresso martini was pharmaceutical Pharmac- stimulant. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, it. Yeah. Pharmaceutical. Well, stimulant. the first popularized name. So it was the stimulant martini or the stimulant when it was at Player Bar, yeah. where Dick Bradsell sort of first created it. But it became super popularized at a nightclub called the Pharmacy, and it was called the pharmaceutical stimulant. Mm-hmm. And the 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 story goes that Kate Moss paid to be there, probably not happy about being there for the opening week of this nightclub in Notting Hill goes up to the bar and says to Dick Bradsaw behind the bar, I want something that's going to wake me up and fuck me up. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I've got just the drink. And that's when it sort of made its way uh, onto the menu. <laughs> 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 sort of, you know. And there's, uh, I mean, the espresso martini, I've, I've mentioned this in multiple episodes already, but it's a phenomenal drink when made well. Right? Yeah, so good. There's a reason it's, uh, so many bartenders hate making it. And the reason they hate making it is because, they made so many of them. Yes. It's not because it's a bad drink. If you think it's a bad drink, you're not making it well. Can I also say <laughs> the thing I love about uh, espresso martini, it's one of the few drinks where the technique of production immediately changes the flavor. Yeah, so yeah. coffee, it's not a liquid. It's a semi-stable colloidal foam. When it's cold and split, it doesn't taste as good as when it's warm and that the oils are all in suspension. Mm-hmm. So as a bartender, when you shake an espresso martini, you're actually resuspending oils and you're redissolving oils that have split out of the coffee and that improves the flavour. So how fluffy your espresso martini is and how much of that golden crema there is improves the taste of the liquid hiding beneath it. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we used to have competitions at 1806, like um, Hannah and Jake at sort of 4 a.m. on a Friday night. Like they got very intense between them as to who could make the most golden fluffy espresso martini and and the goal was like you get that in front of the customer while the whole glass is still golden mm-hmm. you know and that it's settling you know and they were they were <laughs> i don't know who won in the end i think it was pretty you pretty, know pretty pretty cool. tight but they learned a lot of techniques mm. you know the way you hold the shaker the the direction of travel when you shake it that improve I, we're getting way of, too the amount of ice with all of that uh, yeah. uh, uh, and how but the they, ice is oh my god they make good espresso martinis so i yeah I've had this argument with many a bartender who've told me the espresso martini is an awful drink and genuine arguments where if you think it's an awful drink, you're not making it well. No. <laughs> um, 
And then I guess oh, we should. coffee. <laughs> fresh espresso. Fresh espresso. Good it's got to it got to be fresh espresso. It can't yeah. be stuff that's been made the day before or anything nah. like that. Can't be any substitutes. Fresh espresso. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be vo- well. You can use other spirits, but when I we guess opened eighteen oh six, we bought an espresso machine for staff and like a proper two group full yeah. espresso machine and grinder and everything for staff coffee and espresso martinis. That was his whole whole job. We knew mm. we were never going to sell a coffee. It was like that is we're going to make a loss on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're going to have. Really good espresso martinis and, and coffee for stuff. I guess we should also mention the Bloody Mary. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember in the nineties and early two thousands, like people would choose what pub they would go to for brunch on the weekend based on their Bloody Mary. Mm. Like, and this is one of those cocktails that um, it goes beyond cocktail bars. Yeah, you know, th- this was, you know, it's in hotels, it's yeah, in restaurants, it's yeah. In- this was like you. you Everyone, like, you, you could go to the, you know, the, the, the back in the day, you go to the Standard in Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. They couldn't make your cocktail, but they've got a Bloody Mary. And it's banging, you know, and it's, it's a specific recipe. They're working with the chefs to have, you know, con, you know, concentrates that they're boiling down to add in. And it's, you know, an extraordinary sort of drink. And it's a weird drink. It's super strange, isn't like, it? What, tomato, tomato juice. <laughs> tomato juice, Worcestershire. Um, celery salt. Celery salt. Uh, Tabasco. <laughs> it, it's a strange drink, but it works. It is. It's a fucking brilliant drink. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's Moorish. Yeah. Like you have those first few sips and the liquid's so icy cold and then the heat kicks in and you go, I need another sip because my mouth's on fire yeah. and but it's then cold it, it, and then it, it gets hotter <laughs> and I have to have another sip and I'm just, I'm on this ride now. It's, it's a... Um, and, and there's other, I know it's off topic, but one of my favorite Bloody Mary variants is the Bloody Maria, but with mezcal, you know, <laughs> with that little hint of smoke, savory, smoky, yeah, yeah. sweet, sour, salty. It's a phenomenal drink. And I remember going to a bar after finishing work, I finished work early and I went there and it was about midnight and I ordered a Bloody Maria and they go, why are you ordering that now? It's, you know, yeah, it's, it's after drink. midday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just finished work. what I felt like. That, can I please have one? And they're like, oh, all right. We'll go get everything out of the kitchen. <laughs> Final question before we finish up and get into our four secret questions that you haven't heard. No. Um, are there any particular brands of vodka that we should be looking out for? I mean, we've talked about Hartshorn quite a lot and Grain Shaker, both great vodkas. Um, but are there any ones that you've well, seen? Well, I, I know that the, the crew ones? from St. Felix are about to... You know, they're just releasing their Midnight Vodka. Yeah? Yeah, so definitely want to check that out for sure. Um, the crew at Manly Spirits do uh, like an ocean vodka. I've actually tasted that. It, that is exceptional. It's yeah. very weird. Like yeah. I can't imagine outside of a Martini and Bloody Mary what else you'd use it for, but it's just well worth the exploration because it's something so different and so wonderful. Um, yeah. But outside of that, you know, I love where there is a dedication to a grain you know, and a, and a spirit. And, I mean, talking about potato, there's, there's a Swedish company called Carlson's that um, grow the, you know, they work with potato growers within sort of, you know, 20 miles of the distillery. Yeah. And it's like, well, we make one batch each year with the harvest and that's how much vodka there is for this year. Um, you know, that's a really delicious, beautiful textured vodka. Um, yeah, lots of stuff sort of happening out of Europe. And I think that craft distilling is getting big enough yeah. that they have the time. Because, you know, it's a funny thing. If you've got a small still 
your day's work, you know, to get the most value out of it. You want to make a spirit that's got its the highest sale price. And that's not vodka. You know, when you think about single malt whiskey and things like that, for the same effort, maybe even less effort, to be totally honest, it yeah. probably takes less distilling time, energy and hours of work you're trying to, make to make single malt. Yeah, to making something potable yeah. as a white spirit yeah. is... Not saying it doesn't take more time, right? But for a big chunk of the effort in making single malts done by the barrels, not by the distiller, mm-hmm. right? So when you're talking about labour hours to return, you need a much bigger still for vodka to sort of, you know, return that same piece. And so they're expensive. They're not just expensive to build, to buy the kit. They're expensive to make the site safe because it's a much bigger volume and there's all of those extra costs to actually make it operating and operate safely. So I think that the craft distilling industry is finally, you know, it's of a size now where Mm -hmm. people are saying, firstly, actually, I want to drink good craft vodka that is of a sense of place if i go and visit a distillery in a location i want to know what they do with their vodka you know because Mm -hmm. i'm i know what they do with their whiskey i know what they do with their gin i know maybe what they do with their rum well let's see what they do with their vodka because they're clearly dedicated passionate distillers so i think we're starting to see a little bit of a craft vodka sort of resurgence yeah and i'm really excited about that because it's still the number one spirit by volume drunk in the world. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it it's, it's what, one in five mixed drinks at any point in any moment around the planet is vodka. You know, so it's still a huge part of the drinking experience. And I think we can, we should elevate every part, you know, of, of the customer's experience. And so, you know, great vodka just leads to better customers. And I also think, you know, this is Australia. We have such incredible plants that are so unique. There's yeah. a long history of good agriculture. Vodka. And, yeah. But like, let's, I mean, when, when I worked at Vudemond and did the cocktails there, we made a, a, a rotavapt macadamia vodka. Delicious. Yeah. Absolutely delicious. Like why can't you buy a macadamia vodka in a shop? You know, I don't understand that. We've got Davidson Plum Gin. Why haven't we got a vodka in Australia flavoured with Davidson Plum? You know, why, why haven't we got a finger lime vodka that's mm-hmm. readily available? Like, so I think... And we're now starting to farm these things we more, are. more uh, I guess, uniquely Australian. Like, you know, what are we going to export to the world that is, you well, know... These guys made that saltbush vodka and it's phenomenal. Exactly. And same, you mentioned the Manly Spirits. That is flavoured with native Australian seaweed, uh, seaweeds and bed, yeah, yeah, uh, botanicals yeah. that grow yeah. in Manly. Yeah, that's so, right. So... You know, and Archie Rose, you know, they've doubled down on like, nope, our vodka is a botanical vodka. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. Yeah. We're not going to try to make it, you know, super clean. We're actually going to leave in the flavors we love. And I think I think that's fascinating. I also, we should probably mention Itinerant with their new vodka that just came out recently, which is an all-grain vodka, no botanicals, and it's all mashed, fermented, and distilled on site. Which is brilliant. And, Fantastic. Um, uh, Seven Seasons with their uh, Murnong. The mm-hmm. Australian Yam Daisy That is vodka. an incredible vodka. It's quite different. It's like Heart Sean, it's in that same realm, but it really It can well be challenging, worth. but yep. it's flavorful. It's That's flavorful right. And you know? textural. It's it's a really interesting product. Well, <laughs> I think we've mentioned enough, really. Um, let's dive okay. into our final four questions. Are you ready? Yes. Um, they, we just want a quick, quick answer. Okay. They're just something fun. <clears throat> um 
Okay, uh, first one. What is your shot of choice? Oh, hard ones first. Um, <laughs> it depends on the audience. Uh, I hate the flavor, but still will have shots of fernet. Yeah. Um, I do like ice cold gin shots. That's definitely quite high on the list. But then, you know, shots of Ned whiskey. Yeah. That's really good. It's Australian. Yeah. Yeah. Tough question. It is a tough yeah, question. That changes. Oh, actually, it has to be act of treason now. We've just, it's the agave. Yeah, agave. Yeah. yeah. Agave so, yeah. Great. See, it's changed yeah. in the last week. Well, yeah. yeah. It changes <laughs> for me on a daily basis. Um, guilty pleasure drink. Yeah, that's that's actually quite a tricky one as well. I think one of the things that people don't understand when you work in the spirit industry is that spirits become work. Mm-hmm. That it's very hard to pick up a glass of any spirit and not, not analyze not it. analyze it and yeah. think about it. So I do like a beer, mm. you know, and it's probably one of those beers that hark back to a certain childhood innocence that have low alcohol, high sour, and lots of berries or passion fruit. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Your, your passion I'm, I'm fruit sours. Absolutely. Or, yeah. You know, 3% alcohol, yeah, full of fruit. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you like your martini, shaken or stirred? You've already answered this. Yeah, yeah, it's always, <laughs> always stirred. But also, like, one vermouth can always be better with more vermouth, like yeah. different types of vermouth, mix and match your vermouth to match your product. Like I said, you know, at Anther with our gin, we use three different vermouth with vodka. It's awesome to do like a dry vermouth with a hint of dry sherry. Like, mix it up. Yeah, yeah. You have know, fun with it. Have fun with it. Yeah. And yeah. At the end of the day, Gibson's. we're also talking about booze, right? It's not, yeah. don't take it overtly seriously. We're not we saving can. lives. <laughs> Final one. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on red wine and Coke? I think the best way to answer this mm-hmm. is probably to address my thoughts on Coca-Cola. <laughs> Let's not Buckle, buckle in. <laughs> Which I personally believe to be one of the most fascinating successful and compelling flavor components in modern gastronomy or eating and drinking. This idea of nutmeg, clove, cola nut and orange peel making something so ubiquitous that is so compelling and engaging. And you're like, well, wait a minute, a lot of these ingredients are in Angostura. So, I mean, I've been doing cola old fashions for years where you replace your sugar and your bitters with Coke. And then just add a heap of whiskey on top. So I probably wouldn't mix it with red wine. That's probably not for me. But I do love what goes on with Coca-Cola. I think it's a fascinating beverage. I think it's a terrible beverage in a lot of ways. It's the most crafted and honed and evolved ways of delivering sugar and caffeine into the human body. Like it's just, (laughs) you know, but that... You know, when you strip away that soft drink, you know, mess <laughs> and you're left with cola nut, nutmeg, clove and orange peel. Yeah, with a bunch of cinnamon. With a bit of caramel, that burnt um, caramel. It's like that's fascinating, yeah. you know. And things like uh, Long Ray's Dark Soda, which is their sort of, you know, uh, grown up, <laughs> you know, it's a value-laden statement, but their sort of interpretation of like a craft cola. Um, yeah, I think – and. I, Phoenix Juice used to do an organic cola. That was incredible. But if you uh, had Hepburn three, Springs. you'd be eaten. You'd have to go to the bathroom because anyway, some of the ingredients sort of went right through. But I've 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 done a, I've actually done a lot of blind tastings of cola because I find it fascinating I, that that flavor is everywhere. Yeah, 
I agree with you. And like, it, it is an incredibly interesting you thing. You could never launch that now. Like, but it's know, so ingrained oh, in us nowadays. Yeah. It's like here are these things you've never fucking heard of that you don't, you know, see anywhere. Let's put them in a soft drink at <laughs> McDonald's. Like what? Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, it is something that's so globally unanimous. It's such an interesting. Yeah, you, you're right. I think Absolutely it's fascinating, but I wouldn't put it with red wine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> so the, uh, a Coca Cola lover who wouldn't drink it with red wine. There, yeah, there you fair go. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Like I said before, every time I see you, I learn something new. This has been a great, great episode well, for and, me. And the same goes. And every time I see you, you t- give me something to taste that I haven't heard of that blows my mind, whether it's local absinthe or local bijou or just incredible global whiskey. So, yeah, it's yeah. always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Spirited Discussions. I hope you had as much fun as I have and have been able to take away something you didn't know. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your friends and please join me next time on Spirited Discussions. Mm